Well, thank you all for sticking around. We have one more panel uh, between now and food, and, you know, and I know that's always a little dangerous, uh, but we'll try to do that. Uh, I did want to just mention, people ask me, why are we here, uh, especially since uh, we have an online audience that is tens, if not 50 times bigger than the audience here in the, uh, in the room. I wanted, because we, we came here because we felt it was vital to be in California, that we wanted to release this from California, not just zoom it in. We wanted to make clear our commitment to California and the fact that this is not going to end just because we've released this report. We intend to be staying with your state and continuing to push for things that need to get done here. So with that, I want to move us on to our next panel. Uh, you've heard sort of from the statewide perspective with the, with the senators and the assemblymen, and we're very grateful for their being here. But if you look at the report, so many of the things that we suggest need to be done, need to be done at the local level, the county level, or the municipal level. Uh, or if they don't have to be done there, they can be done there. And we wanted to get a little bit of a sort of a local perspective to this. So our next two speakers are going to tackle that. Uh, first, we have right here to my left is uh, Jeff Hewitt, who is the county commissioner from Riverside uh, County. Uh, he's former mayor of uh, Casa Mesa and city councilor. Uh, we're thrilled to have him here. He's also, uh, we've had a long, big ideological spectrum. We've had uh, a Republican assemblyman. We had just had two Democratic senators. Uh, Jeff is actually the highest ranking libertarian elected anywhere in the country. So, uh, so we appreciate that. And then we have uh, also with us today is, uh, is Chesa Boudin. And uh, he is the district attorney from San Francisco. Actually, as I read the press out here, I'm supposed to, isn't the official title the controversial district attorney from San Francisco? Uh, at least that's the way I've heard it, uh, heard it phrased. Actually, we have a great deal uh, in common with, with Chesa. Uh, he, I met him when he was actually the public defender uh, for San Francisco. And I really appreciate that. And we appreciate his work uh, on criminal justice issues and we're happy to have him here as well. In fact, I'm gonna turn it over to, to Chesa to start us off here, so if you'd, uh, like to lead off here. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here, and I uh, really appreciate the Cato Institute Project on Poverty and Inequality in California for hosting all of us today and for inviting me to speak. Um, there's certainly nothing controversial about the work I'm doing when it comes to fighting poverty, doing justice, and keeping communities safe. Uh, there are a lot of folks, unfortunately, who don't want to see change and don't want to see progress. Uh, who are trying to make controversy out of things that I think we can all agree on, whether we're Libertarian, Green Party, Republican, or as I am, a proud Democrat. Um, I also want to just say that this is an amazing group you've brought together. Uh, it's a diverse group, as you said, politically and in so many other ways uh, that we've heard from today and will continue to hear from. I very much wish that I could be there in person and tried uh, to move mountains to be there, uh, but it is one of the wonders of modern technology that we can do a hybrid in-person virtual event. So thank you for facilitating that. These conversations, especially across party lines, are so critical as we think about how we can move towards the kinds of communities at the local level, the state level, and the national level that all of us are proud to call home, the kind of community that I'm proud to raise my six-week-old son in. Um, you know, we have to confront serious and difficult questions about how in California, where we have the largest economy anywhere in the United States, I believe the fifth largest economy in the world, we continue to have the highest poverty levels in the nation and some of the greatest wealth inequality gaps anywhere in the world. 
as the top law enforcement official elected in the city and county of San Francisco, I see poverty and desperation push people into the criminal legal system every day. And I see it make our residents feel unsafe as they go about their daily lives. The only way to fully realize our crime prevention and public safety goals is if we have collaborative approaches to addressing poverty and community well-being, to recognizing and attacking the history of racial inequity that have led us to where we are today. Now, I want to speak specifically about criminal justice reform recommendations made in the report. I'm proud to say that when I look at those specific recommendations, we have accomplished quite a bit already in San Francisco. For example, we've eliminated nearly all locally controlled fines and fees in the criminal legal system. We've proactively expunged marijuana records, criminal records, in the wake of Proposition 64. And we're looking forward to the implementation of AB 1076, which will prospectively automate records relief available to people who are formerly incarcerated and have fulfilled all of their obligations to the state. I'm not going to go into detail about why these are important, because your report does that. Without question, there's more we can do, and we must do. Now, I know we were short on time, and I'm eager to hear what others have to say. So I want to focus in for a moment just on two recommendations, numbers 9 and 13. Recommendation 9 is to resist any effort to roll back recent criminal justice reforms, including Propositions 47 and 57. Prop 47 has successfully achieved exactly what Californians voted for, and it's part of why they rejected the effort to roll it back last year. Prop 47 has significantly reduced mass incarceration, ensuring that prison spending is focused on violent and serious offenses. It's done so without compromising public safety. Both property and violent crime rates are as low in California as they were in the 1960s. In other words, we're at historic lows for reported crime, even in the face of this massive reform. Proposition 47, in other words, has redirected tens of millions of dollars away from corrections, towards education and treatment, towards healthier, stronger communities, and towards prevention, rather than simply reactively punishing. Prop 47 has also reduced racial disparities in the criminal justice system, and this is exactly what reformers want when we talk about criminal justice reform. It ended, to a large extent, the overcrowding crisis in California, and it couldn't have come sooner when you look at the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the damage that that did and could have been so much worse had we been faced with the kind of overcrowding conditions that led the U.S. Supreme Court not so long ago to declare that our entire state prison system was violating the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Within months of the passage of Prop 47, the prison population dropped below that federal court-mandated target. We could never have continued as we were before Prop 47. We couldn't have done it because the U.S. Supreme Court told us we couldn't do it. And we couldn't have done it because we were building more prisons and jails to prop up mass incarceration in ways that were both socially and economically bankrupting our local governments. The state's incarceration rate today, in the wake of these reforms, is as low as it was in the early 1990s. And, and for historical context, it hit a peak, an unconstitutional peak, in 2006. 
Now, both our violent and property crime rates are as low as they were in the 1960s. I said this earlier. But what we see is that these reforms are actually contributing to a virtuous cycle where instead of having incarceration destroy lives and families and communities, we're investing in the kinds of things that prevent crime and effectively rehabilitate people. That's not something that state prison does well. Only 2% of the state prison budget goes to rehabilitative programs. And we see the outcome. About two-thirds of people getting out of prison will recidivate within a few years. We know, in other words, that incarceration has diminishing returns in most cases. Researchers have found that increased length of incarceration has had very little impact on crime over the past 25 years. At our current incarceration rate, the effect of more incarceration is basically zero. In other words, Prop 47 demonstrates that we can safely and effectively reduce over-incarceration while achieving public safety and investing in our communities. In the first year of funding, Prop 47 reinvested $67 million of savings from decreased incarceration into education, victim services, mental health, and substance abuse treatment. These investments are only just beginning. San Francisco implemented our Proposition 47 funded activities in late 2017. So we have yet to experience the full benefit of these interventions. That's something we're going to see over years to come as people who are struggling with substance abuse get sober, as people who need mental health care get treatment, and as people who are uh, looking to get back to work receive the educational uh, advances that they need to join the workforce. The other thing to remember is that realignment and Prop 47 have reduced incarceration rates in ways that greatly impact racial disparities, particularly the African-American community. Since 2010, the incarceration rate of African-American men in the state of California has declined 23%. If you look at arrest rates before and after Proposition 47, again, we see the biggest impact is on African-Americans, with a 5% decline in the overall arrest rate and a 9% decline in arrests resulting in jail bookings. Now, there was a study looking at case processing in San Francisco where researchers found that Proposition 47 led to a 50%, 5-0% decrease in the black-white sentence disparity in San Francisco. That's a massive change. Now, when we talk about controversy, none of what I just said is or should be controversial. Those are things we can all agree are positive. The California voters have spoken clearly, repeatedly, that tough-on-crime tactics of the past are no longer an acceptable or effective approach. Now is not the time to regress or to double down on failed approaches. It is not the time to exploit tragedies, to roll back policies that have done so much to eliminate racial bias and to free up resources to invest in things we all hold dear. Instead, it's a time to continue to advance thoughtful, and data-driven approaches that treat people as human beings and address the root causes of crime so that we can prevent crimes proactively instead of simply reacting after someone has been victimized. It is essential that we do this treatment-focused work in our communities to prevent crime, to mitigate future harms, and to recognize that state prisons are effective at warehousing people, but not at healing victims or rehabilitating those who will come back to join their communities after a sentence is served. When I and other line ADAs in my office prosecute a case, when we secure a state prison commitment, 
we do so with an expectation that sentenced time in custody and away from the community will include rehabilitative programming. And sadly, that's not a reality that exists in our state prison today. With an average financial cost per year per person of about $81,000 to incarcerate in state prison, and of course the unmeasurable human cost to families and communities that are torn apart by incarceration, the millions of young people who grow up without a father or mother because they've been lost to incarceration. It's essential that people are provided the kind of treatment and programming they need while they're incarcerated so that they can safely return home. This is a critical issue at the local level as well. In San Francisco, about 75% of the people arrested and brought to our jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. We have to start treating and paying attention to root causes of crime or else we'll never be able to build the kind of safe communities that we want to raise our children in. I want to turn uh, now in the time that remains to recommendation 13. And for folks who haven't memorized the report, um, don't be forgiven, it is long, it does take a while to get through, but it's worth it, I assure you. Um, recommendation 13 is to upgrade programs within the prison system to prepare those people sentenced to state prison uh, who are re-entering society to do so successfully, right? Re-entry, in other words. This is a critical part of public safety and of changing and improving the uh, really failed approach to criminal justice that I think we're, we're all concerned about. Um, so there's this significant policy debate in California and really around the country that revolves around local versus state control of, of certain key issues. Um, and, you know, I think when it comes to um, reentry, this is something that is done at the state level from state prison. It's done at the local level from county jails. And when people are released from state prison, they get paroled or uh, released to their local communities where we at the local level, law enforcement and others uh, have to make sure that there are smooth reentries. The district attorneys make internal policies that have enormous impact on greater communities. And so I want to give a couple examples about things we do and, um, you know, in, in the ways that um, we think about reentry. You know, one thing is, I want to just give an example from Washington State here, but we know that if we want people to be able to get back to work, then we need them to have identification, right? If we want people to be able to get housing, we need them to have identification. And in San Francisco County Jail, like in the state prison, when people are released, all too often they're released with no identification whatsoever. In Washington State, they passed a law a few years ago that requires the Department of Corrections to ensure that before any incarcerated individual is released and processed back to the street, they're given a state ID. The kinds of things that allow them to get on a bus, to pay for a hotel, to apply for a job, any of the things that we need people to do to be successful, um, there are so many little things that we could do to ensure that people aren't being released from jails at 10 p.m. or midnight after public transit is closed, after homeless shelters are closed. And instead, ensure that there is an opportunity, as they did in Santa Clara County, for everybody who's cycling in and out of the jail and the emergency rooms in high frequency to find supportive housing. That's how we build safety. That's how we ensure that we're treating people with humanity. And that's how we effectively and judiciously marshal tax dollars in ways that are effective and efficient. Now, I know I've probably gone a little bit over um, uh, the time allotted. I want to make sure to save time for questions. So let me uh, stop there and, um, 
eagerly hear what my colleagues on the panel have to say. Well, thank you very much and really appreciate your being with us today. And I know you've been really busy and you're squeezing this in and we do appreciate that. I'm going to turn to, to Jeff now. Your perspective is you've been a city councilor, a mayor, a county commissioner. You ran for governor, uh, although I think most of California did, as, as I understand it. Uh, but that uh, you certainly have a, a different perspective than some of the legislators we've seen. So tell us a little bit about local implementation of some of these ideas. All right. Can, is it working? Yeah. Uh, first of all, we. Uh, a couple of days ago, we lost a very, very unique and a very uh, profound uh, American called Colin Powell, who, who, who uh, passed away at the age of 84. Coincidentally, there was another very, very important person in, in the city of Riverside, my county, named Art uh, Littleworth. And Art Littleworth was uh, president of the Riverside University School District in the 60s, and he became, he, he pushed that school district to be the first large school district in the United States to, to, to go to desegregation without a court order. And isn't that a great thing? I mean, that's, that, is, that is right there doing so much to get rid of poverty. Unfortunately, I feel like we're back to the same place again. And instead of being overtly racist, we see in our education, um, we see areas where public schools Public schools do, do have a, uh, a monopoly here in this state. I mean, it's very, very difficult. Like, like was said earlier on, people of means uh, can, can either live in those uh, uh, school districts that have some of the finest teachers and all the ac accessibility to everything, or they can live in a crummy school district where they get all the push-off teachers that you know, really shouldn't even be teachers, maybe. And, uh, and then a lot of them can't afford a private school uh, to, to, for that option. And so that's why I think until we get down to where there's more of, a, uh, of an ability to start new charter schools to actually possibly have either a voucher or a, a school savings account system for parents, the ones that are going to be helped the most are the ones that need it the most. Um, I had a friend who just sold his house in the city of uh, San Jose. He's in that little area that's close to Cupertino. He's about a mile and, mile and a quarter away from Apple headquarters. And his house that he bought for $183,000 in 1985, he just sold for $2.95 million. And there were people just waiting to get it because partly it's in one of the best school districts in, uh, in the United States. That's how important those things are. Now, that's, that's an elite amount of people that are top you know, uh, tech people in Silicon Valley. But, but the points I'm trying to make is there, all these things, are this, and this is a great report. I mean, I don't think there's anything I really disagreed with. That, that's the scary part. Um, that is scary. No, I, look at he, the, the, Cato. If, if they're not libertarian, I don't know what is. But uh, the nice part of it, about this is a lot of these issues, um, and going back to where I'm coming from as a uh, former mayor, uh, a current uh, large county we call them supervisors here in California. They're commissioners pretty much everywhere else. But, um, but, but the job of a supervisor, we have 58 counties, and as large as the state apparatus is, it's not big enough. Actually, the 58 counties go ahead and carry out. They're those functional arms of what the state legislatures and uh, the state government wants to do. Uh, we have a, a, a $7 billion annual budget in, um, in Riverside County, which is the 10th largest county in the United States, the fourth largest in uh, California. And 
of discretionary income, it's only about a billion. In other words, six billion of that is basically passed through uh, for all these different programs that the state has us implement. And, and what I've seen, um, we've done a couple of things that I think believe uh, right there in Riverside County, for instance, uh, last year we were the first ones, uh, actually two years ago, I forget there was COVID. Two years ago, we started with the first county to come up with a program for uh, in-home prepared meals that could be sold and delivered out and around everybody. Now there's a lot of uh, families that want to make some extra income. There's a lot of immigrant families and such that can prepare these great meals. They can apply for a, a permit with environmental health and, and go out there and it's, it's a pretty simple thing, very inexpensive. And those are things that are going back to get people more involved and let people rise up from some of those lower uh, levels of the economics uh, ladder. Um, Riverside County has had a, a really tough time in the sense that Right now, we are of the 23 metro uh, areas in the country. The Inland Empire, which is San Bernardino and Riverside County, has the highest inflation over last year. We're at 6.8%. And uh, wage increases have been about 4%. So everybody is going to go back to 2.8% right there just because of, of inflation. We, we are the world's center of logistics. We know what's going on right now uh, with all those ships sitting outside of uh, Long Beach and San Pedro, but most of those come in and there's, there's warehouses and fulfillment centers all over the Inland Empire. These are businesses that came about and in the Great uh, Recession, we would have been really, really hurt the worst if we didn't get warehouses coming in there and supplying thousands and thousands of jobs, many of which are not bad paying. But that's where I'll go back to where talking with um, uh, Chesa here and stuff too. When we're talking about somebody, we, we've had mass incarceration and as a libertarian, I agree with all of these, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice reforms. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're putting people in prison for, for, for victimless crimes. And, and those people, once they're in there, they've been institutionalized and they, they have such a, a tough time coming back in and fitting into society because boom, they're let go and where do they go now? They, of course, they're gonna recidivate, you know, cause another crime just so they can get their three meals and whatever, but getting them back into uh, society is so hard. And what I found, I, I've had my own small business for years up until just a few years ago. Um, and I used to hire, yeah, I, I dug swimming pools. It was not a job that a lot of people wanted to go do. But I've, I've hired several people that were um, parolees or you know, had been in prison or whatever. And some of those were the best workers I could have. A lot of times it's getting companies to, to, to take that you know, chance with somebody and give them a chance because that's one less person that we're gonna be spending $81,000 a year on and then giving them a chance to contribute to their family and everything else. So um, they're in Riverside County We've got not only got the highest, um, you know, inflation, but we also grew the most in this last year of any county in California. When people were leaving, they weren't leaving Riverside County because comparatively to the coastal counties along there like LA and Orange and San Diego, we're very, very affordable. We've been saying all the, the median home price, I believe is actually over 800,000 now for California as a whole. 
It's over 500,000 for, uh, for Riverside County. But here's what we're seeing. This poverty rate is gonna get higher and higher because not only is that a huge amount to try to put down a down payment for and then pay on, remember, interest rates right now are historically the lowest they've ever been. They're like two and 3%. Can you imagine when the Fed actually does what they have to do anyway to hold off this inflation, start raising it five, six, eight percent. You think people can't afford a home now? It's gonna be crazy. And we're gonna either see home prices crash. Um, if, if, if they crash, then that has a domino effect on all kinds of things. So we've gotta take care of these things. We've gotta take, this is a perfect, perfect outline on how California, and again, it's, it's it's bipartisan, or tripartisan, if you include us. Um, it's, it's actually got a, a map to get out of this, because these are all common sense solutions. I'm gonna bring up water again, too. It wasn't directly brought up in here, but uh, Senator Hurtado, her um, district is up there in King County. It's very, very uh, agricultural. I talked to Joe DeBosk, who's a medium-sized uh, Central Valley um, farmer. He, he grows, he's the largest uh, organic melon grower for uh, Whole Foods and, and Trader Joe's, such like that. He's only getting 5% of the water that he's gonna be needing coming from the state water project. He's gonna be laying off workers that he's had for two and three generations. These are all uh, workers that have been there for, you know, their father's there, they love, they've got great uh, benefits, everything else. Where do they go? Where do they go? It's got a domino effect of everything, not just for building new homes, because you need will serve uh, letters for each new track, uh, but it's, it's, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be absolutely crazy with the, the combination of not having enough water, and we can do two things to cure it. If indeed you think that climate change is gonna do it quick enough, I don't think so. But I think we can make reservoirs. I think we can increase our capacity if we pursue a policy of abundance instead of scarcity. That is the single most elemental thing we need here in this state is water. So water helps out with housing, helps out with business, helps out with especially agriculture. And, uh, and then going down that list, um, I'll hit a lot of them right now if you don't mind me talking because I, I can talk for hours. Um, Riverside County is the largest employer for CalPERS, the California Public Employee Retirement System, CalPERS. We are the largest employer after the state. The three larger counties have their own defined benefit program. We have a $3.6 billion, billion dollar unfunded liability. That is money that we owe right now that our, our employees or, or retirees have already rang up that we don't have. What, the, the reason why I'm saying this, and not only he talks about CalSTRS, but you realize for every 100 teachers, I believe there's about 110 non-teachers in every public school. We have uh, nutritional department workers, cafeteria, all the different uh, you know, people, the janitors, all that. Most all those have CalPERS um, uh, retirements, not CalSTRS. And most other public employees have CalPERS. Its portfolio is almost 400 billion, 420 billion right now. The problem is 
The stock market in this last year has done better than it has in years. But we all know that this is a bubble. We all know that it's not going to get the kind of returns that it's got this, this year. So when it goes down, it forces all the state agencies, cities, uh, school districts, uh, water districts, counties, all those different agencies with all their CalPERS workers to go ahead and pay the difference between the assumed rate, which I believe is about right, right at about 7% right now, they will be moving it down near the end of this year to as low as maybe six and a half, but certainly at six and a quarter percent. And that puts a greater burden on each public agency. And so now you've only got so much revenue coming in, so instead of paying for those public safety like uh, police and fire, for you know, fixing potholes, for paying the, the, the salaries for everybody else, it's gonna cut it back and cut it back and shrink it. So as we see it now, we are getting future generations that are gonna pay the highest taxes ever and get the least amount of service. So the pension tsunami's a huge thing. It's gonna to add to our, our poverty factor, you know, with housing, with, again, uh, education. You know, get that freedom of choice in education. Get those, those mothers and, and fathers in, in poor areas that haven't had that chance to go get a great uh, education themselves, because that is the single biggest uh, indicator to get you out of, out of poverty. Um, but look, at, when it comes to nimbyism, I just was up here a month ago in, in Sacramento. My wife just got elected. She's a city councilwoman now, so I came along just kind of as uh, her arm candy, if you can imagine that. And I, and I, you know, and I saw a lot of my old friends, and everybody was complaining. All the local electeds, all these city council members and mayors were screaming, it's the end of the world because of SB9 and SB10. Well, you know what? What do you expect? What do you expect when at the local level, here's what happens. A new development's gonna come in. You know, you're a city council, you're sitting up here and all these neighbors are coming in going, no, 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 we can't stand any more cars. This is gonna get rid of our beautiful fields. You know, we've got, they'll, again, seek was abused like nothing I've ever seen before. But they make it so hard and then those people can't take the heat and they realize they need new housing units, but they still say no. So SB9 and SB10, although not perfect, was actually, you know, the state saying, we've got to do something. We're so far behind. We're three and a half million units short in the state, and we've got to be able to do it. That's not going to solve everything. It's a start. But until local electeds have the courage to stand up and say, look, you got your piece of paradise. Everybody complained when your development was built. Now, come on, you're going to have kids, and they need somewhere to to, to build and everything too. So, so getting that, I mean, I, I know local electors don't like to hear that, <laughs> but they have to. And then also, um, th there's another thing, the fire issue. We are gonna be losing so much area for new building because it's on the interface between the, the, the wild, you know, the wildlands and, and the suburban interface. That's where we see these horrible big fires going. We have to start doing some measures and coming up with some new technology to protect those homes. We don't want to cut them out from people living there because those are some of the best areas, some of the best quality of lives. So we got to look at a lot of these, you know, there's a few more things I could put in this, but I'll tell you what, overall, um, I'm extremely impressed. And um, with that,
I think I've talked long enough. We can take some. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah we, want, we want to give everybody a chance to ask some questions. We'll have quick questions from here, of course. Once again, if you're uh, at home and you want to ask questions, you can come in on your platform, whether it's the Cato Events page, uh, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag CatoCalifornia. You can ask some questions and we'll get them relayed to you. Uh, I want to start off, actually, I have a uh, couple of questions for Chesa. Uh, one of the first, you were actually one of the first persons to tune me into the interaction between law enforcement and homelessness. Uh, went on later, met with Kelly Cutler and some of the homeless activists as well. But in particular, you, you pointed out the, that law enforcement has, is not exactly a great solution to dealing with the problem of people experiencing homelessness. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And thank, you know, thanks for the question. I remember when you and I talked about that a couple of years ago. One of the real challenges is that a lot of the folks who I represent in San Francisco, homeowners, business owners, when they see visible homelessness or poverty or drug use, it makes them feel unsafe. But being poor, being unhoused is not a crime. And so folks look to the district attorney or the police chief to solve this issue. The truth is we don't always have the best tools. Often we don't have the best tools to solve these problems. Even putting aside what your policy preferences are, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in a case a few years ago that it is unconstitutional to prosecute someone for setting up a tent, even in an unpermitted, unauthorized area, unless we can first show, and this is key, that there were available homeless shelter beds the person refused to avail themselves of. We can't show that in San Francisco. Can't show that in Los Angeles or most other big cities across the state of California. There are not enough homeless shelter beds. And when you compare, for example, my budget, District Attorney of San Francisco, with the budget of what was the Department of Homelessness and Housing here in San Francisco, their budget is five times my budget. So the resources are there, the mandate is there, we need to build beds, whether they're navigation centers or homeless shelters or supportive housing or affordable housing. I'm not a housing expert, but what I know is that our county jail cannot be a dumping ground for people who are simply too poor to pay for a roof over their head. Well, one, one other question uh, that comes up is you, you've been one of the leaders in the movement towards restorative justice as an alternative to simply incarcerating people on that. And we do mention that in the report that we think there needs to be more effort placed in, in this whole idea of restorative justice. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, at a high level, and there's a lot of confusion about this, so I appreciate the opportunity to clarify. At a high level, restorative justice is a victim-centered approach. And I think that's what gets lost from the conversation. You know, in, in a traditional criminal prosecution, the victim is a piece of evidence. There are cases where prosecutors will force victims to testify against their will. There are cases, this isn't rare even, across the country where prosecutors will jail victims, have them arrested and jailed to make sure they're available to testify when needed to secure convictions. In other words, victims are being used to further a punitive outcome without anyone taking the time to ask what the victim wants or needs. Restorative justice says, wait a second, someone was harmed in this crime. Let's ask them what their needs are and let's center them in the process. Restorative justice is something that we've been doing in San Francisco for a while. I'm really proud to say in our juvenile division, we've got several years now of showing that crime victims are far more satisfied when they're given a restorative justice option 
than when they're not given that option. And critically, we see lower recidivism rates for those people who've been accused of causing harm or committing crimes who successfully complete restorative justice than those who successfully complete a normal prison or jail sentence. They're not necessarily mutually ex ex uh, exclusive. You can do restorative justice in the context of incarceration as well. The point is to center the victim, to ask them what their needs are, and to ensure that first, we're trying to meet those needs and using the victim's desires as a grounding point, a, a focal point for how we hold the person who caused the harm accountable. Terrific. Man. Jeff, a question for you. Um, one of the things that I learned pretty clearly coming out here so often was that poverty is different in different parts of California. What, what poverty along the coast or even what's in San Francisco versus LA versus the Central Valley versus the Inland Empire, all different types of poverty. They share certain characteristics, they share certain problems in, in, together, but, but there's differences there. What can you tell us about poverty as it affects your particular area, your county, your region? Well, um, I believe it was uh, Senator Kumlager that said that she has some of the wealthiest uh, zip codes and then some of the poorest zip codes in her Senate district. Well, in Riverside County, we have an area called Thermal or Oasis right out there on the North Shore of the Salton Sea, which certainly has that same, those two extremes. It has uh, some, it has a very, very poor uh, Indian reservation, which has not really benefited from gambling yet or anything. And then it's got a lot of, it's got a history of a lot of farm workers, a lot of uh, Latinos that are living in uh, squalid trailer parks and such. And then right down uh, the street, you're gonna, you'll see uh, BMW has its uh, private uh, place where these uh, European, probably billionaires, can come over and race their cars around in, in these $5 million houses. And we're getting ready to put in a, a thermal beach uh, surfing club thing where it's a 20-acre lake with artificial waves and stuff. Um, Look, a lot, of, a lot of people have come out there and said this is gentrification. Uh, gentrification doesn't have to be a bad thing. In other words, uh, what I'd like to see is a lot of these people that are living there have the chance to go through the system, get the jobs, work at those places and stuff, and eventually own one of those really expensive condos or whatever. See, that's, to me, that's the way we get out of this. Um, we talked about universal basic income. Uh, I think we've seen that that doesn't work by the mere fact that we had that for a year and a half. You know, we paid people to stay away from working with, with extended unemployment benefits and even stimulus on top of that. And now we've got a generation who has been enculturated to think it's okay to stay home instead of go to work. And, and, and that's really hurting us because businesses can't come back to, to full capacity unless people want to go to work. And so. We should have lots of people that want to do that, uh, but we don't. And I, I, think, I think it's really important. You know, we have, we have safety net programs, you know, and, and homelessness is, 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 we can say there's three different categories. We can say there's a thousand different categories, but e each homeless person suffers from something differently. And I have found that if we give them transitional housing, now, we've, we've done a few of the pallet houses, the tiny eight by tens. They're about $9,000 a unit, which is very, very affordable when you get down to it. 
Um, they, they, it's a secure place, safe place for them to do. But unless you accompany it with usually like a nonprofit um, to service that area and take care of those needs and have that continuum of care close by to where, you know, if, if they uh, are ready to go to rehabilitation and maybe get off uh, their, their uh, substance abuse. Uh, a lot of these, you know, since, and I'm gonna really get down on my uh, colleague here, uh, the, the, he, he's very familiar with it, I'm sure, the 91 re, re, realignment or reorg or whatever, where uh, they took, uh, and they took away, they set the formulas for counties for their behavioral health monies and, uh, you know, at that time, Riverside County was a very small county. Well, we haven't got our fair share, so I'm gonna keep uh, fighting on that. I know in the coastal counties, they're getting pretty good. But, but those affect things. You know, as a county, so many of these need those really good behavioral health. And when you talk about conservatorships and stuff, of course it gets to that point where there are people that are danger to themselves and others, and, and they need that help. You know, um, I think we all have the best intentions, but getting the best bang for your buck and getting those things, if you can get two or three out of a group of 12 that are on their way and, and getting into programs and, and starting to, they're not gonna fall back so easily, I think that's a great thing. But, but overall, we're spending a lot of money on homelessness and I think a lot of these projects aren't working. So you gotta have the whole, full thing there to make it work. And then again, there's gonna be people that just plain like the independence of it. And, no matter what you do, they want to stay doing what they're doing. And at, at some points, you know, getting away, I, I believe that uh, Chase referred to the Boise case where um, in, in a public spot, you can take them off a of private property if they say no trespassing and the owner says, get them off my property. But public property, you have to show that you have a bed. And, uh, and, I, and it's tough in, in a very dense population like San Francisco with three quarter of a million people right there. Um, but for us, we're doing it. We've got a couple cities that are stepping up. Nobody wants to have the shelters in their cities, um, but they all need to address this because every city has homeless and a little bit different uh, uh, levels. But in the Inland Empire, we've got in my district, the, the city of Moreno Valley with over 200,000 people has, has quite a problem. And then the city of Banning, which by the way, has the county jail and I'm trying to make it so that at least they can get bus tickets back to where, um, where their family is or where they came from so they don't just let them out of jail and just ride in that same downtown um, because the jail has, happens to be there. So, um, so those are the things in, in, in Empire. Well, that's great. Now let's open it up to folks out here, folks in the room, folks uh, at home. Uh, feel free to ask any questions that, that you might have. Have anybody who'd like to ask something? Here, before I go, before I go to online. All right, I'm gonna open up, Kelly, you got, so you got someone online? Yes, this is from Kathy Reisenwitz. Um, Jeff Hewitt, what's the permitting process like for new apartments in Riverside County? How long does it take to get a permit on average? Can neighbors delay or block development? Did you say on, on apartments? Or yes, for okay. apartments. Yeah, okay, so. <laughs> The average, I'll, I'll tell you right now, per unit, I, I don't know the exact numbers on apartments, but per unit for a single family home, you're right around $80,000 to $85,000 in diff fees, developer, development impact fees. You know, those are school fees, all these other ones. So um, you, right now for apartments, uh, I, a lot of those fees are, are, are very similar. I don't know if they're quite as much 
um, as they are for a home. But the process is very, very, it's long and, you know, uh, it, it can take up to years, depending upon uh, the size of the uh, apartment complex. And again, if it's in an area close to single family homes that you know, have large yards and they're, they, they would love to be a gated community or something, but they're not, um, you're going to get a lot of pushback. You're going to get a lot of pushback. NIMBYism, to me, is endemic, just like, uh, just like COVID is now. So it, it's a tough one. <laughs> Anything else? Anyone? Let me, let me ask you a, a question, Jason. The people have buttonholed me uh, outside and asked about. And this is one you've, yeah, I'm sure you've held to had to deal with, which is the shoplifting issue in, in San Francisco. Uh, there was an online video that I understand was a little bit misleading that, that's been out there on that. But the, but the general idea that there's a, there's a sudden crime rate with shop, shoplifting, uh, and it, it is caused because the California lowered or, or actually uh, raised the threshold at which things became a felony from being a misdemeanor and, and got prosecuted. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that? My understanding, just, I was just going to mention, I just heard the other day that 15 states actually have a higher threshold than California for, the, for what that, that misdemeanor felony division is, including Texas, uh, among odd places. But I th could you address that? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the prior threshold hadn't been adjusted uh, even for inflation for decades. So you're right. There's lots of parts of the country that have a higher threshold. There was a uh, op-ed, maybe it was an editorial in the New York Times a few months ago advocating for a $10,000 threshold, which would be about more than 10 times higher than what we've got in California. Uh, but look, that's state law. It doesn't just affect San Francisco. And what there is a huge upsurge in is videos of theft and news coverage of theft. What there's not a huge upsurge in is theft. <laughs> and that distinction is really important because if you look at police data, and I know that not all crimes are reported, but if they're not reported, police can't investigate and arrest. And if police don't arrest, I can't prosecute. If you look at police data, in 2020, my first year in office, overall theft crimes in San Francisco fell by 40 percent. 40. That's historic. Obviously, COVID pandemic drove some of that, no question about it. But to say that this is a surging problem is to blindly ignore the data. Now, this year, 2021, as we've reopened, we've seen theft start to trickle back up. It's now up about 9% year to date compared to last year. Mind you, that's still a 30% drop from 2019. So is it a problem that I take seriously? 100%. I'm gonna tell you how we're approaching it. But let's remember, this is not a surging problem. We have a lot more media coverage. We have a lot more headlines. We have a lot more viral videos because of a proliferation of video cameras and body-worn cameras because of interest in this topic. But in terms of what police are seeing, what my office is given the opportunity to prosecute, it's a dramatic and historic decline. Now, what are we doing about it? San Francisco has, for well over a decade, been a national leader, and not in a good way, in property crime. It's been true for many years under many different administrations, both mayor, police, and district attorney. What I'm focused on doing is dismantling and disrupting the organized crime networks that create a marketplace for stolen goods. But police only make arrests in about 2 to 3% of reported thefts in San Francisco. They're not able to get there fast enough. There's not enough evidence or enough tools. They're focused on violent crimes and gun crimes. 
So we don't get that many bites at the apple when it comes to prosecuting people who commit the street level thefts. But we know that so many of those people are selling the stolen goods from a broken car window or from a store that they run out of with expensive luxury products. They are selling those goods into an international flow of, of, of commerce. And my investigators and my assistant district attorneys are working on more than half a dozen special operations targeting those fencing networks. And in 2020, one of those operations that we worked on with dozens of different law enforcement agents from many different jurisdictions resulted in seizing over $8 million in stolen retail goods. That's the kind of operation that I'm excited to announce in the months ahead that we're working on actively right now that's going to disrupt and dismantle the operations that create so much demand for stolen goods in the first place. In the meantime, when these crimes do get reported and if police do make an arrest, we stand ready, willing, and able to hold people who commit crimes accountable. Well, thank you. I, I want, uh, do we have any other, I thought I saw a hand out there. No, if not, I, I want to give you guys a chance to just sort of sum up here. And Chris asked the, the last panel this question, if there's one thing that we could, that we could do that from the report or that you have your own ideas on that would change things in California and help reduce poverty in California, what would that one thing be? You're king for a day, uh, we give you uh, Newsonian powers, and uh, you, you can, uh, you can uh, do what you need to do, what would it be? Uh, Jeff okay, wants to go first. Um, so the easy, the, the low-hanging fruit here is CEQA. Um, we're sitting in a city where uh, a very powerful ex-Senate uh, leader is the mayor here, and he, uh, he wanted a new home for the Kings. So I believe that was actually in that, that law that allowed for you know, really important, well-connected projects don't have to go through the process. That didn't go through the process. Um, I have sat there and watched uh, environmental groups that who are uh, basically not really environmental groups, but they're unions, not even necessarily government unions, but private unions, who use this as a tool to get what they want. This is wrong, this is evil. In fact, uh, former uh, Attorney General uh, Javier Becerra, I remember he was giving something to the CSAC uh, Latino caucus I was in there, and he was saying how people were skirting around CEQA to get some of these warehouses in or something. He's going to go get all of them. I said, well, why don't you go after the ones that are using it to uh, get PLAs, project labor agreements? Uh, and then they don't care anything about those, those uh, raptors that were going to hit, be hit by the big windmills or whatever else. You can make up anything, but they know they can tie up that developer in litigation long enough, and they just they say, heck with it, it's, we're just going to add that cost. When you keep adding costs and costs and costs, remember it's the consumer, it's the person we're trying to, to lift out of poverty that eventually has to pay all those bills. And, um, and so I think, I think if I were king for a day, I would totally, totally renege uh, secret to where, again, as a planning commissioner before I was on a city council, the first thing I saw was I just saw these huge reams made up of lots of killed trees of all these things checked off on everything that should have been automatic. 
It's a process that's way, way too cumbersome. It's fraught with the ability for everyone. The good news is that everybody has a voice in this state. The bad news is, is that everybody has a voice in this state. <laughs> and and you, you know what I'm saying. And so um, that's the reason why we don't have more reservoirs for storage, is because there are such extreme environmental groups. And there's a lot of environmental groups that are very, very moderate and we care about everything. I'm on three different uh, species habitat conservation programs. The largest one in the United States, Western Riverside Regional Conservation Authority. It's built out, it's gonna be 155,000 acres. It's 150 different species of plants and animals. Do I believe that those are necessary? Maybe not necessarily, but you know what? It leaves us some open area. So we don't end up as one big tarmac like some other uh, valleys that we've seen. But, but all these things together, there has to be moderation. And I guarantee you, Chase and I probably agree on a lot of these uh, uh, things that he works on uh, 100%. And then some other things, we're gonna have some really good arguments over a beer, hopefully. But at the end of the day, we have to respect each other. We have to come together and do the things that we agree on and accomplish those things and show that we're working together, um, we can do it. CEQA's gotta be reformed, it's gotta be tossed out. And just like uh, qualified immunity needs to be tossed out and reworked, um, there's lots of things that we have to work on, but that's the single most important thing. And then number two is school choice. Thank you. Chesa, sum it up. We'll definitely agree that we have a lot of common ground and, and some, some robust room for disagreement over a beer, and I look forward to that beer. Um, when, uh, when I think about what the single most important thing is, again, I'm looking at this from the lens of public safety, and, and that's my focus always. Uh, we need universal access to mental health care and drug treatment for people. 75% of people booked into our county jail, as I said earlier, drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. People are being victimized in very serious ways because of our failure to intervene upstream. We know that people on our streets and across this state need mental health care. Decades ago, when, when Reagan shut down all the mental health care facilities, we never built anything to replace them. And we're paying the price today. Um, I don't know that there's a, a magic bullet solution, but I know that there are a lot of people with tremendous expertise, compassion, and the tools to provide stability and support to those in mental health crises. And right now we're waiting until after they cause serious harm to another person before we intervene. Our county jail, not just in San Francisco, but across the state, LA, many other counties, our county jails are the number one providers of mental health services. It's not cost effective, it's not humane, and it's guaranteeing that more people get hurt before we intervene. We've got to do better and we've got to start upstream. Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate both of you uh, for being with us today. Uh, really, uh, I think this demonstrates uh, two things that I've wanted to see demonstrate today. One is the holistic nature of the problem of poverty, that it ranges from criminal justice to environmental laws to housing to education. All these issues are tied in together. And while we can slice off and deal with each one separately until we deal with all these issues, we're not going to solve the problem of poverty. And the second is that we can have disagreements. We can, uh, we can have a civil discussion of these issues. They're, they're, they may be contentious. They might be controversial, as it were. But uh, we can have important discussions of these things. And we can work together uh, to solve these problems, which is hugely important. Uh, I'm going to ask folks uh, now to step out. If, if you would, we're going to, uh, to have a brief break here uh, while they get us ready for lunch.
And uh, so we have a reception outside here. If you'd like uh, to come out, step out and uh, take part of that, we'd really appreciate it. You can leave your stuff here at your seat. We'll be coming right back. Uh, but we really would uh, appreciate that if you, if you would. So thank you all very much. Uh, and uh, we'll be chatting. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>